Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Phil Carras Survival Podcast. <laughs> what's up, Kev? Hey, what's up? That was the weakest intro I've ever done. It's terrible. You're tired. Hold on a second. Hey, guys. Welcome back to the Phil Carras Survival Podcast. That was weak Podcast. as well. I know. Just Let's just go with it. Um, hey, guys. Um, we are sponsored. If you didn't know that, um, we do paid ads. Um, but we do paid sponsorships with companies that we believe in. Killcliff.com. If you use survival10 at killcliff.com, you can save 10% on checkout. They support the Navy SEAL Foundation, been supporting us since day one. We are big fans of Kill Cliff, especially George, because he drinks and hoards all the CBD drinks. Mm -hmm. I caught him hiding them underneath his desk. I actually caught him underneath his desk in the fetal drinking a CBD drink, chugging it <laughs> with empty cans around him. Uh, don't be greedy, George. Killcliff.com. Intervention. He, he needs an intervention. He's super mellow because that CBD. Use Kill Cliff or use survival one zero to save 10% on your checkout at killcliff.com. Also, this podcast is sponsored by Casey Highlights. Uh, we're about to do a giveaway in the near future for Casey Highlights, a good strategic partner in the overlanding space with the best lights in the world. If you use Phil Craft one word at Casey Highlights, that's H-I-L-I-T-E-S.com, you could save 10% on checkout. I have their everyday carry um, light, which is an LED light, which is really cool. You wouldn't think they would have that, but super affordable, and now you get to save 10%. I need some from a van, by the way. You do? I need some lights from a van. You need a lot of things for that Sprinter van. <laughs> <laughs> like some O-rings for that crapper that's in it. Um, also, we're sponsored by Triarch Systems. Look, there's a lot of companies in the gun industry that are being grossly affected by all the things that are going on. I mean, most businesses aren't in business. I mean, they can't sell guns as a gun store or manufacture guns because they can't keep up with the demand. Triarch Systems, T-R-I-A-R-C systems.com. If you go there and you use Philcraft, you can save 5% on a custom gun build. So that's the one thing that hasn't been stagnated is custom guns. Mm -hmm. I have a Tri-11, which is one of the most epic guns I've ever shot, that's available on TriarchSystems.com. Pistols, carbines, rifles, everything you need, um, check them out. Now, big shout out to Chris and Jimmy and the guys at Triarch Systems. Also, just a big shout out to Uncana. Um, talking about CBD, cannabinoid receptors are inside your body and they need CBD to make everything go away that's bad. I'm a big fan of CBD, a big supporter of Uncana. Uncana.com, that's un-c-a-n-n-a.com. Use Philcraft25 to save a big 25% on checkout. Uh, George, we need to get a resupply for Uncana, by the way. Is he in the room? Mm-hmm. He doesn't even... He He's ignoring you. He doesn't care, man. He's ignoring you. He doesn't yeah. care. It's too late now, man. You're, mm -hmm. you're, we're over it. Hey, so today on this podcast, me and Kevin Owens are talking about leadership. We have a little bit of experience in leadership. We've been kind of doing it since day one in the military. Uh, we get into some stories about survival and leadership. Uh, also, Kevin's experience um, in the Irish military, but also coming into the American military with that leadership experience. It's going to be a really great podcast that's going to benefit you because leadership is one of the most significant things in overcoming adversity as a team or as a group. Um, it's, it's been effective in our military careers and could be effective in your everyday life. Here we go. Kevin Owens. Michael Glover. Leadership. It's funny, it's <laughs> funny. Before I, I started coming here, on the first time I did a podcast with you, I'm like, is there like a script or like a list of questions? And you're like, nope, it's just conversation. 
So here we are, like a year later, and I have no idea what we're going to talk about, but let's let's get into it. Let's make it up as we go. Yeah, it's better that way. Well, let's yeah. not even define what we're actually going to do out loud. Yeah. Let's just pretend <laughs> and see if we can organically come up. Um, leadership is something that we talked about that uh, we should do. I think it stemmed from the conversation you had with um, Sergeant Major of the entire Special Forces mm-hmm. Command. Um, when you talked to him, a lot of these things were communicated about because of his experience as a command sergeant major running the regiment. Yeah. Um, and then we had talked about like, hey, we need to talk about it because it's important in survival. Why would you think it's important in survival if you had to say off the top of your head? Well, I'd say leadership and mentorship from from uh, your whole military career and, and, and even earlier on. Um, I, I think we, we emulate good leaders and, and we see you know, they always say you, you learn as much from bad leaders as you do from, from good leaders, you know? So we, we, uh, we emulate good leaders, and then we, we look at the traits of bad leaders, and we try to avoid uh, those pitfalls when we become leaders, in the military especially. Um, I, I, I think, you know, you, you've seen it yourself a bunch of times, like in a, in a survival situation, in a natural disaster, people who step up, People are so scared that they'll follow any they'll follow anyone who steps up and becomes a leader, right? And it doesn't mean like even in the military, if there's a, a gunfight going on and a leader is not taking charge and he's freaking out, if, if if a private stepped up and started to take charge, people would follow him because they want to live, right? That 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 fear will drive them towards the guy that they think is going to help them survive that immediate situation. So in a, in a disaster, in a survival situation. Being a leader and stepping up and taking charge is like hugely important. We we identified early on, and we've had these conversations that a lot of military services, like the Navy, even the Air Force, a lot of them don't have a school or a, a kind of a methodology to train leadership from a very young age. Yeah. When we were in basic training in the infantry from a very young age, uh, you you had already been in the um, mm-hmm. a counterterrorism force overseas, but they start and raise you to be an informal leader in a lot of ways, but also uh, be able to step up in the absence of leadership, especially for combat. So the whole idea is, you know, you're fighting in war, uh, which happened in every war that we fought, and your chain of command gets killed. Mm-hmm. Like if you don't know the mission and you don't understand the objectives uh, and you don't understand the plan, then the mission's gonna fail. Yeah. So you have to be prepared to step up, even as the lowest ranked guy at any point at any time. So the Air, the Air Force and the Navy don't do that? Well, they, they, they so that- It's I, a combat arms thing probably, right? It is. Yeah. Well, the big, the, the big difference is a lot of the specific jobs in the uh, other services are very technical jobs. Yeah. So you need an expert, like the radar guy who's looking at the screen is not going to be in, on a patrol in mm-hmm. Afghanistan yeah. because he's needed in that specific role. Um, and then combat arms, obviously, even if you're not in combat arms, I mean, you could be a military, they call them MPs, combat arms now. Mm-hmm. Uh, whatever the, yeah, whatever's, like transportation is a good example. Yeah. You're a transportation person, but you're doing a convoy, and then all of a sudden you're blown out of your convoy, and now you have to be a combat arms kind of person. Yeah. So they started focusing now on going, hey, we need small unit tactics, we need leadership, and we need, we need more of it. Yeah, yeah, probably, you know, a lot of lessons learned in, in the war on terror, you know? Um, yeah, and that's built into almost everything we do in training, right? You'll take out the leaders and uh, make the junior leaders step up and, and, and take control and take command. So uh, that, that's really, and, and you're training your next senior leaders that way, right? You're, mm-hmm. you're, you're training them from a really young age, which, which is 
super crucial, especially in combat arms. I remember you telling me a long time ago about the hierarchy that was foreign militaries, mm -hmm. whereby um, even in our Navy is similar to that. Um, whereby enlisted guys in their rank structure don't even assimilate with officers. Yeah. And there's yeah. a defined, it's like a mon monarchy, you know, it's like yeah. a British rev uh, uh, regiment kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, like an old English like military a class unit. system. Yeah. A class a system. You'll find that anywhere the British army used to rule, right? Ireland, India, places like that. Um, very regimented, very officers are officers and they, they, they stay off on their own. And uh, NCOs are, are a separate class system almost and then privates are privates they're the grunts right and uh, it's a terrible system I, I really don't like it having been in that and then been in the the US military where NCOs pretty much run the show especially in SF and officers have their role but it, it's different in like the Irish army when I was there er, the officers ran everything nothing moved without, without an officer being in charge of it which is yeah what is the the um, when we scale when we scale and um you look at like officer or enlisted people growing up in the military, is there a scale in which they get so senior they can laterally communicate and go, hey, now I'm a, I don't know, sergeant major, I could talk to the officer, or is it at the highest rank, you're still lower than the lowest ranking officer? Yes, it, it, yeah, yeah, it's Ugh. like that, right? And uh, yeah, even, even like the sergeant major of the SF unit I was in, he was very much an NCO, and not an officer, you know. And and you know, I, I you know, we've talked about this that, that whole NCO and officer and you know enlisted man and officer structure. It came from back in the day when when the officers had an education and, and the, the enlisted were like grunts, right? And they had no education. That's just not the case anymore. Yeah. And uh, often you find some of the enlisted oh, guys, yeah, are, are master's lawyers, degrees. Doctors. Yeah, they have more. They have more. They more education, formal education than, than an officer, right? So um, I, I think, like, if I was if I had the power to, to restructure it, I, I I mean, I wouldn't change it drastically, but I would give a path for a senior NCO with a college degree to become a captain or something like, like just laterally transfer. Cause you think about like a senior guy, right? 14 years in the military, special operations guy, and he's an E8 and he has a degree, just move him to be a captain, company commander. He could easily do it. No schooling, nothing. You just, you promote him. And, and that's what the Warren officer program was stood up for in, in World War II initially. It was to take enlisted people and make them warrant officers uh, so they could be in charge but it still wasn't an officer right yeah. it's still not you're still not getting into the club you know I always thought uh, that whole thing to me was super bizarre because you could go into uh, an academy a military academy or you can go into college right in mm -hmm. ROTC and you come out and you're 22 years yeah. old yeah. and then you're a second lieutenant you yeah. go through infantry officer basic course IOBC maybe you go to ranger school uh, for IOBC for the infantry officers it's a part of the pipeline but then you report to your unit and the platoon that you report to the platoon sergeant who's a senior E7 has 10 years or more mm -hmm. potentially operating at war running a platoon growing up through the ranks with so much experience and what I've seen is the worst officers come mm -hmm. in and try to assert their dominance yeah. versus hey I, maybe I should be humble and understanding I don't know anything here yeah. and I'm going to allow myself to digest like a sponge all the information and then be very good at it yeah. you don't see that in specifically 
certain units, you don't see that because they understand the importance of learning the job versus coming in and asserting your rank. Yeah, I, I, I wonder what they're told in school because yeah, you come in, you're 22, Okay, you've you've been through some training uh, and you got a degree that doesn't impress me. And uh, you come in and now you're in charge. And I've seen it both ways. And I've always gotten along with junior officers because they always knew their role. And um, like even even captains in SF that had been infantry officers and then come in and went through the pipeline and became a special forces officer on a team. With at least with me, they always knew the role. I run the team. I run day to day stuff. You you deal with the company commander and you deal up and I'll deal down. Right? Um, it's it's when they come in and and they try to flex their muscle like that. And and yeah, yeah, you you need your NCOs coming in because they'll they'll they might not throw you in front of the bus, but they're not going to pull you out of the way when the bus is coming. You know what I mean? So I I think clearly delineating what what each person's role is would be a smart move for for a lieutenant. You don't have to lose face in front of all all the platoon, but you go in, you pull the platoon sergeant in to one side and say, okay, talk to me about how this is supposed to run. What do you need from me? And how can I help us to be successful? That's kind of the mindset a young lieutenant should be going into into a, a platoon with in my opinion. Yeah, I always thought it was comical, the whole operational roles of special forces officers in the regiment. You have an officer who's a captain, Mm -hmm. and a captain who he had to have done his platoon leader or his company command time. Um, And transitioning, he went to the advanced course, which is their, you know, captain accelerating into the rank of captain. Then they get to an operational attachment, and they have two years of team time. That's mm-hmm. all they're allowed to get. Yeah. And then they move on. Some of them move on to uh, more advanced academic training. Some of them move into different billets and roles in training um, kind of um, uh, positions. And then their staff for the rest of their entire yeah. careers mm-hmm. making high level operational decisions for guys on the ground with, in some cases, at two years, depending on what group, depending on what unit where you had no combat, yep, no understanding. Mm-hmm. And then you have battalion commanders who are lieutenant colonels and then commander commanders of groups that potentially have no understanding of what war really is besides through a TV screen in the tactical operations center. Yeah, it's very much check the box, move up to the next rank, check the box. And it's become that way with senior NCOs. But let me go, let me go back and talk about the Irish Army real quick because I thought about something and... and um, this this will blow your mind. So as bad as it is, like let's say you go you come into the U.S. military and and you come out with your college degree and you do all that training. In the Irish Army, they come in with a high school diploma, officers, right now. I don't know how what it's like now, but back then they came in with a high school diploma. Now they were very much already in a clique. They were officers' sons and and very much Ooh. of that higher level, yeah. that that kind of upper class. They took a few riffraff every now and again just to make it look good. But they come out with a high school education and you went into cadet training. And I think at the time, it was 18 months of training, right? And when you come out at the at the other end, you were a second lieutenant, uh, no college degree, and you went, to, you went to a unit. And then you spent like a year or a year and a half as a, as a lieutenant, second lieutenant, first lieutenant, in a unit as a PL. And then you got promoted, I think, to captain, and then you went to college for four years on a captain's pay. Everybody else in college is freaking starving and eating ramen no money and they have a, and an officer's man. pay for four years while they're in college getting their degree so when I was in basic training in uh, the Irish army our platoon leader was like 20 years old 
and with no experience whatsoever. After I, his eight, he was after working his eighteen months, months of, yeah. of cadet training, and he was a child. He oh was like, I, like I was gosh. only eighteen too, but he was a child and hot-headed, temperamental, running, and running whole the whole platoon. And you know, you have a platoon sergeant, you had a bunch of NCOs that were like instructors, but. Um, they dare not say anything because of that class system. Like, like if those in the American army, we would pull, and we have done, you pull that offer to the side and say, you're fucking up. Oh, sorry. You, you, you're, you're messing up, right? You need to do this, this, and this, or, or nobody's going to listen to you. But nobody would do that to him because he was an officer. You know what oh I mean? Oh my God. Yeah, it was, it was ridiculous. And at the time, I didn't know any better. Um, it was funny one time, you know, we had the wall lockers and, uh, on top of the wall locker, we had all our kit lined out. So you had all your pouches and your belt, and it was like 58 pattern webbing. And then your, your, you had your rucksack, then all your kit, and then your helmet on top. So it was all stacked, like neatly for inspection. And he came in one time, and he was doing like ramsacking the room, because that's what he thought leaders are supposed to do. But he was pulling on the drawer on the bottom of my wall locker, and the helmet fell off and hit him in the back of the head. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's like, yes. Like, yes. Yeah, oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, uh, uh, but he was a hothead, yeah, and and very childish in his mannerisms. Oh, he's twenty. Yeah, yeah, you're prepubescent. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I'm interested to hear your perspective on on moving from a regular army perspective in that kind of hierarchy in chain of command, and then what it was like in moving to special operations. Because when you moved into the Ranger Wing, I imagine like. Like people have the, like the term operator mm -hmm. uh, means a lot of things to a lot of people depending yeah. on where you're at, but it, in a lot of places it doesn't mean anything. You're yeah. just you're just you're still in the military, yeah. right? You're yeah. still whatever your rank is. You could be high speed. How did that change? So when I when I finished selection, I remember like we started I think with 88 people and ended with like six or something like that, right? But I remember in the last. Uh, and it was kind of like Ranger School. It was out in the field. It was, you know... Uh, it was modeled exactly after uh, Ranger yeah, School, right? Yeah, yeah. And it was all platoon attack and squad attack and starvation, all that stuff, right? So, but I remember near the end, this guy who was also a student stepped up and started taking control. It was like in the second last day, you know what I mean? I'm like, who did I? I didn't remember seeing him the whole time. And he had to turn out to be an officer. He was trying to spotlight Ranger at the end, right? So... Um, you just he, didn't realize it because in, really, in I, selection, you don't have a no, rank. No, no ranks. You have a number. And, and I didn't know he's an officer. And I, hard, I hardly saw him, right? So he kind of hid. And there at the end, he stepped up, right? And I was like, okay, who's this guy? But after we graduated, what happens with them, they go back to their unit. If there's not a slot in the unit for them, if they pass, then there's nowhere for them to go. To go back to their unit, they come in whenever a slot opens up, right? But this guy came in right away, but we had to do like a OTC type course, right? Mm -hmm. Shooting CQB, all the skills you need. And they put him in charge of our OTC school, even though he, he had no skills and he never did any training. He never shot in the range with us, never did CQB. What? Yeah, because they didn't want to, sh this is the class system. They didn't want him to not be able to outshoot me, right? Because I'm riffraff, you know, enlisted, right? So in order not to embarrass him, he never trained with us. So now he's a platoon leader in a special operations unit. I'm sure it's not like this now, but he's a PL in a special operations unit with no training. And uh, he came one day, we were doing a coordinate search exercise when we were on probation. And a coordinate search exercise is, uh, it, it used to happen a lot like, uh, 
somebody IRA or whatever, rob a bank, right? They go into the wood line, they, they, they skirt. It was actually based on, on a thing that actually happened. They go into the wood line and we came up and we put snipers on the other end and then we lined out with the police and we sweep forward and push them out into the other end, right? It's called a cordon search. So, um, or you're searching for like a, a detonation point for a bomb that goes across the border or something like that. So we, uh, they put him as the op four, right? Him and a couple of unit guys as the op four. And, we all lined up and we were pushing through and pushing through and he was up a tree and it got we had sims but it got to the point where like hey get down from the tree like you know when you get training just goes too long you're like this is ridiculous you know so guys reached up and grabbed him and he's an officer in the unit and they pulled him down and he started fighting and there was a kid on probation with me who ended up getting kicked out later because he was he made some bad decisions he just walked over and crack with an MP5 across the back of the head knocked him unconscious had a big scar on the back of his head really like, yeah yeah uh, I mean he was being a dick but but the, that kid didn't get kicked out for that he got kicked out later on for some other stuff but uh, yeah this officer went through selection no training at all was put in charge of the, our, proba- our OTC and our probation and then when we were all done, even though he had no training, then then he was in charge. Wow. Which is ridiculous. It's not like, like the, you know, make that we know from that. Yeah, unit. yeah. Now, he told me it's not like that anymore. They, they come in and they train with everybody else. But back then, very class system. And it was purely because they didn't want him to be embarrassed because he couldn't do CQB, he couldn't shoot, he couldn't do, he had no skills. Yeah. He wanted to be embarrassed for the, the, the men, the enlisted well, men. I, I feel like things often change when they're like, you start to figure out what your purpose really is. You know, if it's war, if it's combat, if it's gunfights, if it's hostage rescue, you 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 get this garrison mentality, and this kind of thing happens where all your priorities like upside down. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's like even in that that example, we know in special operations at the highest tiered levels, the officers are side by side with everybody else going through the training. Yeah, because they have to. In order to lead men, they have to earn the respect of the yes. men that they're yeah. with, yeah. that they're meeting the standards, that they're capable. And I think some of the most significant leaders, like General Miller, for example, was on the streets of Mogadishu. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. like doing, yeah. do, I think he was a troop uh, commander at the time. Mm-hmm. And now he's the general of all, basically, military forces, yeah, it I seems. Know, right? well, that, having them not train with us was an, an attempt for them to not lose face, but it had the opposite attempt. It completely made them lose face. We had no... Uh, um, respect for them. We had no confidence in them and it created a them and us society, right? Mm. Which was not as bad in the Ranger Wing as it was in a regular army. There was another guy that was on my course who came in later on as a PL. Guy was a rock star. And he ended up being, when I went back there um, to do the international sniper course when I was a SOTIC instructor, he was the unit commander. And he oh, was wow. he was a rock star. That guy yeah. was super squared away. But he told me like when he was a cadet, I remember him telling me when I was in the unit that uh like they, they, he had a motorcycle. They wouldn't let him have a motorcycle. They, 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 they made him sell it. He, they, he couldn't wear jeans. You know what I mean? It's this upper class thing, right? What? But when he came in, he wanted to train with the unit, and uh, very squared away. But we were in a big training exercise one time, like Ranger Wing training exercise, out in like uh, what would be the equivalent of NTC, right? A big training, massive training place. And a buddy of his who was a cadet with him was an artillery officer, and they were doing an artillery shoot on the same base. So we, me and him drove over there and we were looking for him. We walked into a big tent and they had a big table for all the officers, white tablecloths, like wine glasses, like in the field. 
Like this, this, oh my yeah, gosh. it's so British Is this Army. World War One. Yes, it's <laughs> oh ridiculous. Like they used to have back then. They had like when an officer would go on a course. They'd send a, like an aide with him, like they call him a Batman or whatever, and he'd go and he'd clean his boots for him and get his kit ready and stuff like that. Oh my I, gosh. Yeah, like turn of the century stuff. That's like, insane. Ridiculous. Like here's your, yeah. uh, your shining coat and armor. Yes, ridiculous, Whoa. yeah. When you came to the American military, were you, were you, I mean, you were already, a, had been an operator, mm-hmm. so you were doing like technically proficient, tactically proficient, and you understood leadership. And then you get to the American army and you start off as like an E2, right? Yeah, like you yeah. start from the mm-hmm. ground zero. Yeah. And which I'm always, I'm like, I'm dumbfounded by that, right? I'm like the fact that we don't have a system to go, okay, this, this is your equivalency in training yeah. or rank or whatever. Yeah. So that we could appropriately appropriate you into yeah. the right positions yeah. blows my mind. We could pull it. We could pull in the best and brightest from all over the place. Good. Right. Like the I, I think the Australian SAS yes. did, a, did a program like they that did, where yeah. they could transition SF guys. Yeah. Hey, let's, let's take this guy that some other country spent millions of dollars training yeah. and just drop him in. It's so, so smart. I'm so close to doing that. I know. I remember that you talking so about fun, it. Man. I remember you talking about uh, it. I just got this book called Appel or Apple. It's A P P E L, but it's got a hyphen. It's probably French. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know what that stands name. for. Name. Appel is Appel? name. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that's right. Appel. Yeah. Je Appel. There yeah. you go. Two so, French speakers right here. <laughs> so Appel, and it's about a Canadian um, French Foreign Legion guy. And I always had a lot of respect for the French Foreign Legion. And But I, I think, you know, this is my understanding of the French Foreign Legion and the stereotype that I heard they'll never really be French men. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but they, they're an auxiliary force that's like, um, you know, for the loyalty, you have Africans, you have people from all over the yeah, world yeah. that want to fight for the, the Legion. I almost went to the French Foreign Legion twice, right? But the thing about the Legion are they're expendable because they're a bunch of foreigners, right? Yeah. So the French people are not going to go crazy. about. So they, they were put in to situations where they didn't want to put French people, right? That, that's just a fact, right? It they're, is. They're expendable, yeah. It is. It, it's like what a partisan, or what do they call the, uh, um, Germany did this a lot. Where it was a partisan force, yeah, yeah, right? An, yeah, anti-partisan. Anti-partisan. Partisan, yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they took a lot of Germans from the Second World War and put them in the French Foreign Legion, put them into Indochina to fight the Viet Minh in the 50s. Yeah, Very, yeah. very, uh, and uh, they were fighting communism, right? So they, yeah. they knew a little bit about fighting communism. But when I came in the American Army, I... I tried to hide, but you know what I mean? But I, I couldn't. Now they they, they caught me pretty quick, right? But I was 29 when I went to basic. That's not old. That's super young. But um, when everybody else is 18, it, it's old, right? But when I got to a unit, I went to the infantry. I got to the unit, we do missions, and we have an after-action review. And, and, and I'd be like, don't say anything. Don't say anything. Too don't say anything. And then I couldn't help myself. Yeah. I'd just get up, and I was a private E2, and I'd just be crushing people. Like, I, I crushed a platoon leader one time, and he pulled me to the side, and he was like, I don't appreciate you calling me out like that. And I'm like, you're here to learn. Everybody's here to learn. You know what I mean? Wait, um, like a, the, an infantry platoon leader yeah, or the platoon leader? Yeah. In? No, he's an infantry, but he was a piece of garbage, man. Yeah, he was like a cap horrible. or a second a lieutenant. Or first lieutenant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, was, he was terrible. Yeah. Did you... Uh, there's, you know, uh, I think I was trying to look for the manual cause I have the manual somewhere here, which is uh, the leadership manual that I, I still have from uh, PLDC. Uh, and it said, I think the front of it says something like be no do. Yeah. And you know, I, I, I remember an experience in PLDC where I was an in infantry P, uh, PLDC, but there were all kind of people there. Yeah. Like, uh, and I mean, all, all, all MOSs, MOSs mm-hmm. all jobs. Right. 
But um, one of the examples in PLDC in a leadership block of instruction where, you know, we had this group of people like they had the chairs faced in so he could communicate mm-hmm. and they were talking about uh, this officer and it, it might have been like custard or something. It was something about uh, the Civil War and they were talking about this officer and his position and all these things he did. And then I, I had communicated to the small group leader who was an you know E6 or something like that, that, hey, how come we're highlighting somebody who by all, you know, by all objective reason seems like they didn't really do much, but we're not in a leadership school. That's a, a non-commissioned officer school to make us E5 sergeants mm-hmm. and, and uh, PLDC. How come are we not talking about examples in leadership and senior NCOs? I, every yeah. example you've been giving officers. us has been all officers. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, the reason that officer on the battlefield was successful is yeah. because of all the men who fought yes. with yeah. bayonets yeah. while he stood on his, and in this example, it was a, it was a super poor example because the guy never left his horse on top of the hill with his signal corps, you mm-hmm. know, running flags. So he yeah. never was in the mix of the battle. And they're mm-hmm. like, you know, this guy was so epic and blah, blah. I'm like, he wasn't epic. The, the private who took a, a ball to his his face and fought through adversity, yeah. bayoneting the enemy till he died. Yeah. That's epic. Yeah. And I never understood that about like even the even the title itself, officer, and then non-commissioned yeah. officer. Like yeah. you're not yeah. you're not good enough to be com- called commissioned no, or officer. Yeah, yeah. You're the non-version. I think it's right? such an outdated concept. If you go to like the little bighorn, I was there a couple of weeks ago, yeah. and Custer's there, right? His they last have, stand, right? Yeah, they, uh-huh. yeah. But uh, I mean, it's been romanticized. It wasn't like they all stood back to back and uh, anyway. But you know, of all the graves are everywhere, and uh, there's one at the top of this hill that's and it's all white headstones and a big huge one for Custer. I'm like Custer got everybody killed. <laughs> 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 He was yeah. the poorest decision maker of all. No, he was a terrible officer. Yeah, like he, yeah. he, he, uh, he graduated last in his class at West Point. Like he, he got lucky in in the Civil War and and, and he became a hero in the Civil War. And became a general and then got dropped back down to lieutenant colonel after the war. But he was out. Uh, in the in the west in the in the plains and he was hunting off the back of his horse. You ever heard his story? Uh. And shooting like at Buffalo with a pistol, he shot his horse in the back of the head, killed him, and killed him in Indian territory. Like like the guy was not that sharp, right? Yeah. But you know Custer's last stand, the hero. Yeah, you underestimated the enemy there, Custer. You know. Well, I, I never I never understood the validity of making somebody something in rank based on their academic experience. Yeah. You go, you sit in a classroom and you learn all this theory, yeah. but you have no relevant experience. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, the whole model of um, battlefield commissions, or like you said, commissions for NCOs who show uh, good leadership mm-hmm. traits. I, I, when I was, when I was an E5, uh, when I went to PLDC, I went, you know, like you, I, I was a, a decent leader. I won the leadership award. I won honor grad. I mm-hmm. won the inspection award winner and I won the PT award mm-hmm. and, and cleaned house. Well, I thought in my head, I'm like, well, I didn't know if I was a good leader, but it seems like maybe I have, there's something there. Yeah. I want to become an officer. And I looked at my options. Not, this is before nine 11. And I went out, I, I actually went out and I ventured and I talked to a whole bunch of people. I wanted to go to West Point. Yeah. I had a couple college degree or a couple college credits and I had asked a whole bunch of people and they said, listen, you can get a um, congressional uh, letter um, that says basically they're recommending you for West Point and that's how you do it. So I contacted my congressman mm-hmm. and was out of the military at the time and got no response from anybody. And I remember feeling really defeated because I, 
I went, I'm an E5. I was an E5. Um, Airborne Ranger qualified, was a tomb guard, had my EIB, did everything I should yeah. have done. You just didn't know the right people. I didn't know the right yeah. people. Yeah, yeah. Because I found out later that it, it's not about the ask, it's about who you know. Yes, absolutely it is. It's, yeah. It's, yeah. It, it's not, like if I could change one thing in, in this realm, I would say that you cannot become an F officer unless you do four years enlisted first. Yeah. You know, you have to come in, you have to go through all the, all the, the suck fest as a private sweeping the motor pool and learn what they do. And then you can go become a leader. There's coming out of, out, of, out of college and coming up with a degree that's completely irrelevant to anything you're doing in the military. It's just, a, it's not a good model. You know, we, we met Kent Sohan, for example, Kent, I mean, I'm saying his name, he's in the, in, in the military still, but Kent's a very senior officer. Mm -hmm. And what made Kent, even when I was with him in Charlie Company, what made him great is he knew uh, what we were facing as enlisted guys. Yeah. I mean, the dude was, yeah. he made it up to E5. He went to, uh, I believe, OC, no, he went to a college and went to JRT or JROTC or ROTC mm -hmm. and um, was successful. Yeah. And when he was an officer, he was highly respected. He was. Because of the way he navigated us. Yeah, I, I think there's a fear. I, and I, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I, I assume there's a fear in young officers that if they get too familiar, they'll lose respect or the soldiers will lose respect for them. And there is something to that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't be one of the boys, right? Not, yeah. You have to be, you know, there has to be a professional distance there, yes. but you don't have to treat people like garbage either, you know? And yeah. I've seen some horrible- Talking down to people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the best infantry officer I ever come across was Nate Self who ended up, he came in as a, as a young platoon leader into my platoon. Uh, he ended up going to Roberts Ridge and, and uh, got the Silver Star, Roberts Ridge Ranger, Ranger Battalion and everything. But he came in as a young NCO or a young officer into my, my platoon when I was in E6. After and, Roberts Ridge? No, 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 before it. Oh, before yeah, it. He came oh. straight out of, uh, you know, uh, IOBC, Ranger School, got sent to Germany and he would butter bar, man, came straight yeah. into my platoon. I mean, because you can't go to Ranger Regiment, uh, you have to do your junior PL time. Yes. As before you can go to the Ranger reg uh, Regiment to be a platoon com or a, a platoon, platoon leader. leader. Yes, yeah, so platoon. you have to do platoon leader in a regular army for yep. in the infantry, right? And then you, he was actually, he took the scout platoon after that and then he went to Ranger Regiment and you have to be recommended and it's very, it's very, very, um, hard to do, right? You have to be a rock star, basically. But he came in, I remember he came in initially, young butter bar, and uh, very smart, very personable guy. And he was friendly, everybody liked him, but he, he was still the platoon leader. And I remember one day, that we were like when he showed up, I think maybe in the first day, we were having a meeting, and uh, we all went into the platoon sergeant's office, and there was an E6 there who was a, a bit of a dirtbag and he was like sir we you know there's NCOs and he was like no I'm coming in and he came in and I was like oh man this guy like I didn't think this guy's a dick I'm like this guy's confident right he's confident yeah. leader right and he turned out to be awesome leader and 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 uh the uh improving it, in the most worst circumstances yeah he, 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 he was really really solid and and I, part of that was personality right he was just a good dude but I I think he found he struck a good balance between look I'm not one of the boys I'm not going out drinking with you and hanging out and you're not going to call me by my first name but I'm approachable I'm personable and, and and I'm here for you right so um that that's the balance that young lieutenants have to have to strike when when they come into a unit first um the one in Fort Hood and I said was worthless. We were in Kuwait and he got in an argument with an E5 in the back of the, of the, the vehicle one day. And he said, he, he tried to, he pulled the old, I'm the one with the, with the college degree. 
And this E5 said, I've got a college degree too. You wow. know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, he he was, pulled the old college he degree. He did, yeah. Get the Don't throw your college degree in here. my face. Yeah. I had a, um, when I was a tomb guard, I was the tomb trainer. And I was the tomb trainer because I had a stress fracture in my hip. And uh, so I was on profile. And this guy came in and I, my first NCOER, so my first NCOER as a E5. Evaluation report. Yeah. Evaluation mm-hmm. report uh, I got from, from him. And he just came in. Yeah. And this was he, guy. Was he a platoon sergeant or was he an officer? He was an officer. Okay, yeah. So he was the platoon, he was the new platoon leader. So he was the senior raider? So he was the senior raider. Senior, no, my my squad leader, my uh, squad leader, Sergeant Reed, yeah. was the senior raider. And he was, no, no, I'm he sorry, was he raider. was my raider. Yes. And then the senior but, raider was him. Yes. Was him. Yeah. So uh, this is before NCOERs really were a thing because pre-war, your bullets were like four words. Yeah, right? yeah. Shiny shoes. Shiny shoes, yeah, just crap, uh, right? And you knew the NCO creed or whatever, yeah. All yeah, crap. Yeah. I remember getting that NCOER, and, and at the time, um, I mean, I, dude, I had done everything I could in the regular army up to that point. And I was training E7s, um, uh, young guys that were wanted to be tomb guards. I was training them mm-hmm. in their initial training. It's called, T, we call it TDY. And I put them through a two week selection process and then they go to their release, their, their squads. Well, when I was in that position, um, his name is Rupoli. This guy's name is Rupoli, Lieutenant Rupoli. They made a decision at, at like the higher third infantry command that he was going to be the platoon leader of the entire guard of tomb, uh, tomb guards um, and that he was going to get his badge. So he got his badge in a few weeks without doing all the stuff without else. doing everything you see that that's dude, such I, a bad I, decision dude, I, I to this day it is something that drives me insane yeah. because we hold this badge which has been awarded since 1958 representing um sacrifice right and and honor mm-hmm. seven to nine months is the average it takes you to earn it based on i think aptitude yeah it took me nine months yeah <laughs> like, right like it's so difficult of, of, a, of a task and he got in a couple of weeks he got in a couple that, weeks. that probably weighed on your decisions to get out it did yeah absolutely yeah. did yeah. In, yeah. Fa- in fact when he raided me uh you know we call it two blocked which means at the yeah. bottom of the thing it says it's like uh what is it if, uh, it, it's it's actually success but it's not it's it's uh it's, it's like improvement yeah, it's not needs improvement, but it's, a two block is like, like a one block is like top of the line. A two block is like, okay, you're top of the line, but you're a little bit off. You yeah. still have some improvement to he do, right? He two blocked me. Did he? And wow. then he gave me, the, what are the four, I can't remember this, and I was. Well, it's changed now too. Yeah. Over, yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyways, he gave me a bad NCOER. Yeah. And I asked him and I said, why, I, I, in the counseling, I said, why am I getting a bad NCOER? And he goes, well, you're on profile. I said, with all due respect, I'm on profile because I went from ranger school yeah. straight into airborne school, straight in continuing to walk and guard the tomb. And I have a stress fracture because of that. Yeah. I haven't been malingering. I have these injuries. He's pretty intimidated by you. He right? was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, then, and then he's like, well, he basically said and stated outright, because I was on profile, I wasn't a good soldier. Yeah. And when he did that, I remember looking at my squad leader who I love you, Sergeant Reed, but at the time he was worthless because he didn't want to stand up to anything to anybody. He was scared. And he just looked at me. He's like, I don't know what to say. I was like, I signed it and basically threw it on his desk. I was out of the army a couple yeah. weeks later. That's, I was like, because yeah. they, they wanted to re-up me. And yeah. I said, I'm not fucking re-upping. Such a failure of leadership right failure, there. You man. know, horrible. Failure. Yeah. Um, yeah, the 90s army was, pre-9-11, it was, it was so rough. Crazy, it was dude. rough. Like, I remember when I was in uh, Fort Hood, uh, there was a kid who won 
like soldier of the month. And then on Friday, when Monday was gone, went AWOL. You know, really? we were going AWOL left and right. You know, in the in, um, in basic. No, 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 in Fort Hood. When oh, I was in there. the yeah, unit. Yeah, in the unit. Oh yeah. gosh. And they're like, oh my god, the soldier of the month is going is you now the good soldier are going AWOL too. You know, <laughs> it was horrible. Um, what about, what about you know? We talked a lot about officers. What about senior NCOs that were good mentors and leaders? In uh, like you're talking about that that uh, that officer was intimidated by you. I, I I had a point where I would say something in an AAR, something pertinent based on my experience, and the platoon sergeant just shoot me down, shoot me down, shoot me down, and I pull him in aside front in front of everybody, right? Yeah. And I pull him aside, and I'm like, "What is your problem?" You know? And he said, I, "He's an E7, and I was like a E3 maybe." Oh, and he said, "I can't have you stealing my thunder." <laughs> he said that to me. Well, at least he was honest. And I was like, well, he was honest behind closed doors, right? Because yeah, yeah. I pulled him inside. And I was like, what is your problem, you know? Yeah. And yeah, he said, I can't have you stealing my thunder. Wow. Yeah, because like I had more experience than him, really, you know? Yeah. Especially I had more combat experience than him. So, I, but what about NCOs? Like senior NCOs? I, 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 I feel like leaders, especially pre-9-11, and, and we, were, we were both in SF right after 9-11, but I, 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 I'm struggling to find somebody in the 90s army that was like he's he's a mentor he's a guy i looked up to and he's a guy that that can teach me stuff did you find that i had one guy um I, his name was first sergeant daggeta i think and he's the guy who who allowed me he was my first sergeant he allowed me to go to ranger school yeah when i went to ranger school as a private there was nobody who had a tab besides the first sergeant mm -hmm. in that in that peacetime military not a lot of people were chomping at the bit to go to ranger school. Yeah, yeah. So um, I remember he had a either a silver star or a bronze star with V from Somalia with yeah. 10th Mountain. Okay. And and he was highly respected. He was highly respected as being somebody who was kind of heroic, and then somebody who who was uh, super well respected. Mm -hmm. And then I remember like uh, talking to him about ranger school and how important he thought it was that I was willing to step up and go, which I, you know, I thought was impactful at the time because there wasn't shit else going on. And I was surprised at how everybody in the military seemed to be malingering. Yeah, People were more concerned about going to the club on Friday, Saturday night than they were about serving or doing anything. Well, that's a peacetime army. Dude, that, that, it, it, it was horrible. It is a peacetime army, I, I, yeah. Yeah, it was horrible. I, I wanna talk about, yeah, let's talk about the senior NCOs that we know in Special Forces Command. Yeah. Because there are some rare instances, but I don't look at them and go, these guys are rock stars. Mm -hmm. I, I just remember taking every one of my team sergeants, for example, and taking the best parts of them and kind of stealing that for myself and how I would lead as a team sergeant later on. Well, I, I think you do that when you're more senior and you, you have some experience, like young soldiers don't generally do that. Um, I, 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 just uh, when you're talking about getting out, I remember, and you probably saw this too when you were in the guard, the old guard, but when, when young soldiers come in, if they go to a, a, a bad squad leader, they'll end up getting out. Yes. If they go to a good squad leader and a good squad when he trains, 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 they'll end up reading up and go, yes. going forward. You know, One the, bad experience will yeah, set these guys Yeah, they're away. like, this is not for me, yeah. and they'll move off. But in SF, yeah, as, like, I, I was a little different because when I, by the time I, because I had to spend six years in the infantry to get my citizenship, so by the time I got through the Q course and got to a team, I was an E7. I just, I pinned E7 
uh, or I made E7 in language school, right? And then, so I was in E7 getting to a theme. So I was just Which is rare for people because yeah. usually yeah. I'm mean, actually only think of a handful of guys that graduated the Q course in my class that were E7s. Um, but it's not, it's not the normal. No, it's not. No. And uh, so I got there. So I, I was, uh, I would say I was fairly critical of leadership at that point. And when I saw things that were wrong, I, I, that I would not have done, uh, it was very hard for me to shut up and just do what I'm told. You know what I mean? So I had some issues with, with uh, senior NCOs, but I, I'm trying. So what are some examples of some things that went, went wrong? Um, so, like, I remember getting to Afghanistan, and we had one medic on the team, right? And um, a, a medic is like gold, right? You can't leave the wire without a medic, and generally you want, you need two medics. But they um, were going on mission, the first mission I was going on, I'm an 18 Bravo, right? I'm a weapons guy, and the medic's on the 50 cal. And I'm like, why is the medic on the 50 cal? That gun is going to get shot at by everybody on the battlefield because it's a casually producing weapon. He, and he can't, if somebody gets hit and he has to leave, he can't leave that casually producing weapon to go treat somebody. I'm like, that's yeah, dumb. That's basic shit. Uh, yeah, but, but no, no, oh no, no. Well, that's he, your job too as 18 Bravo. Exactly, yeah. yeah, but I'm on the tail gun, right? That, that drove me crazy. So there was, there was I, could, I could probably talk about 30 examples like that and I'm like, this makes no sense in my experience. And, and, but but it, it was, uh, I, I did not find real good, strong, senior NCO leadership in SF. I just didn't. And maybe it's because I was so senior myself by the time I got there. There was good dudes and it was good, decent leaders, but there's a lot of bad leaders too, would you say? Oh, a ton of bad leaders. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we and we got the opportunity, I guess, in our um, opportunities and serving in the commanders and extremist force yeah. to kind of get the tip of the spear of guys mm -hmm. who are more active, yeah. more likely to seek opportunities and mm -hmm. challenges. And even then I didn't see like Tony was, I mean, Tony's a good example, mm -hmm. right? Jason hated Tony's way of leading because he was very hands off. Yeah. But I love that opportunity because it, I thrive in, in operating independently, mm -hmm. but some people don't. Jason ha, at the time liked structure and a, he did. a do, little do bit. Do you think Tony was hands off because he had such a senior team that ran itself or would he have been like that with any team? No, I, I well, it's in his personality, right? He's it super is. laid yeah. back. Yeah. His brother was the same way though. Really? Yeah. And, and you know, his brother was a senior NCO mm -hmm. at the same time he was in special operations. But what I, what, what Tony was too, was, um, besides the awards thing, which is another freaking podcast <laughs> itself, yeah. um, he was very, um, he was very willing to take time to make sure his guys were taken care of, mm -hmm. whether that was just doing NCOERs. Like every time I saw Tony, um, and he wasn't around, he was in the office or on a computer yeah. doing stuff for work. Yeah, yeah. So it's not like, and, and on the, like, Tony on the X was very effective. Yeah. He never freaked out. Yep. He never lost mm -hmm. control. I mean, even when I was excited, sometimes I'd run up to him like, hey, we're flexing to the whatever, blah, blah, blah. He's like, okay, mm -hmm. go ahead and flex. Yeah, he's super and laid be, back. Yeah. And he'd be the assault force commander and you know, he's just looking and just in Tony's way. Yeah. So it, it's, it's striking the balance, right? Because what I look for leadership is how they operate under the most extreme stress mm -hmm. because I don't care if 
you don't like how they administratively operate. I mean, even though that's a big thing, right? If, if you can't handle the admin side, which I know we're, we are both very good at that. And I, I know team sergeants who neglect it. They want to be on the range all the time. But meanwhile, six NCOERs are six months late. You're screwing your guys, right? Screwing your yeah, guys. Yeah. I was rarely yeah. on the range mm-hmm. because I was taking care of the guys. You have to. Yeah, you have yeah. to. And, and especially in, in the uh, commanders and the scrims for you have such senior guys. Those cell leaders can run training without you. You yeah. know what I mean? They're all Sephardic and so they qualified and they have all these skills. So uh, you do have to take a step back and make sure the admin stuff squared away. But people, people, people are always going to complain about their leaders, right? Either you're two hands off or if you're not, if you're not two hands off, you're a micromanager. You know yeah. what I mean? They're, they're, always. Yeah. Yeah. So they're, they're, it's just the way it is. Yeah. I remember uh, my, my first team sergeant, Will, um, Willie was a great team sergeant. He wasn't super active, proactive in like seeking the enemy because he had experienced loss. I mean, his rotations with third group prior mm-hmm. uh, in the invasion and then subsequently uh, the year before, they lost a lot of guys. Yeah. Uh, he had guys shot, he had guys killed, and he was part of those experiences. So he was more careful and more organized and, and, and deliberate, I guess more is the an- word. analytical. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like he would not just go on, like, like Ben Bittner is a good example. Um, ben Bittner would be like, hey, we're rolling out. We're just doing this. And I'm yeah. like, well, Ben's a cowboy. I'm going with Ben. We're doing this. Yeah. And then um, at the time it was uh, Painter. Yep. Uh, Painter was su- super aggressive. Mm-hmm. So I rolled with those guys because I, I knew that when we did split ops, I was going to be able to be aggressive. Me yeah. and Neil, those guys, we did a whole bunch of active stuff while the rest of the like, I don't know. I, I, there's not even a word for it because it's, I don't want to mean it, mean it in a bad way. Mm-hmm. They were just less proactive, but they were super. Willie made me and the whole entire team for the first time that I've ever seen it outside of school. We did uh, isolation. We did an ISOFAC. We did course of action development. We went through MDMP, the yeah. military decision making process, which is painful. Yeah. But it's one of the reasons when we went into this operation, a helicopter, uh, we lost the MH 47, a whole bunch of crap happened. Uh, I, I, call, I was calling for fire. We almost got killed in friendly fire, me and Neil on mm-hmm. top of a building. Um, I mean, it impacted right next to us. It would have killed us if it was a hot round. It was a, um, it was a uh, what is it called? Um, you shoot up in the air and it, it illuminates. Airburst? You know, an illumination no. round. Yeah, yeah. A, a loom round. Yeah, a loom, yeah. And, and if it wasn't loom and it was HE, because we were calling HE, we'd have been dead. Mm. And so those things that were happening and our ability to mitigate it was based off of our planning. So I, when I walked away from Willie, even though guys would talk shit about Willie, um, I thought in my head, man, I, I am so prepared now to understand that process because he made me do mm-hmm. that on such a massive scale. Um, and, and maybe that's what it is, right? You take, you take little pieces yeah. of, the, of the best parts of leadership and even remember the worst so you don't make those same mistakes. Yeah, you try to avoid the bad traits, right, that you've seen before. And, uh, you know, that, it's funny, that massive planning thing has its place. But you remember, uh, like, we did planning, deliberate planning in 06 and 07. But then we hit a target, and we had it, we, we got intel from a guy on the target. And we had a flex to another target. It was uh, it was on the hood of the truck. All right, we're going here. You do this. You do this, Roger. Yes. And we did it so many times. Yeah. It became it became uh, very routine to us. But... Um, 
yeah, they, you know, they, they say pl a plan is, is a commonly understood basis for change, right? You have a yeah. base plan and you can flex. And then people coming in who, who didn't have our experience, like young sales and stuff like that, they would see us doing stuff like that and be like, oh my God, you know, yeah. you guys are just flexing to, to five more targets Next tonight. Level. Yeah, yeah, very, very much. But uh, I, I think... You know, the, the Army, the way they do it, you do the primary leadership development course, which is now called the... WLC. It, well, it changed yeah. even since then. Oh, really? I, I ran WLC, now it's called BLC, Basic Leader Course. Oh, okay. It's a 30-day school, right? And then you, uh, which I did in Fort Hood, and I actually learned a lot of stuff at it. Even though I was super experienced, you can, you can learn stuff at every school you go if you, if you apply yourself, right? I actually did learn some stuff at that. Um, so that's becoming an E5, a sergeant, you go to... BLC it's called now, it used to be called PLDC when we went. And then when you're becoming an E6, you go to what I went to was BNOC, Basic Non-Commissioned Officer course. You yep. probably did it on a Q course, did you? Yeah, I did. I, yeah. I did it beforehand. I went from Germany because again, I was in that six year window trying to wait for my citizenship. So I went to from Germany back to uh, Benning? Fort Benning Ooh. for six weeks of infantry training, you know? And I was like, okay, I'll learn some stuff here. And this was... 2001, no, 2000. I just yeah. come back from Kosovo after nine months of being an E6 because I pinned and then I went to school. But I was like, you know what? I'm going to be living in the barracks. I'm going to get in great shape. I'm going to be working out every night. And then I got to know a few guys and we had to strip clubs and drink, <laughs> drinking all the time. You know what I mean? But we, we went out. And again, prior to 9-11, to different army completely, completely which the mindset was just different you weren't focused on anything no so we were going out in the field and the instructors were like talking up big big mad shit right we were not like they're like um you're gonna go out there you're gonna dig in it's gonna be hard we went out to the spot and the holes were already dug from the class before us oh we my just gosh. jumped in and then all the instructors went home we were out there there was like 200 just of hanging us out by ourselves you know what we did what? we had a civil war reenactment we, <laughs> we had miles gear we lined up with a hundred guys on each side like a hundred feet apart and then one side got the shoot and if your gear went off you laid down shut I'm up I am not kidding yeah That's this is what we did infantry beanock infantry beanock right and it was uh, like I, I remember we had the remember the uh, the clear plastic things with the, with the, you put it on the overhead projector to put it on the wall. Remember you had the classes yes, on, on yeah, the clear, yeah. fill, whatever you call that. So they were like, you're going to have to teach a class. And I'm like, okay. And uh, like they were, I was like, hey, can I get my class, you know, so I can do the research. And they're like, oh no, the class is already built from the class before. All you have to do is put the slide up and read it and you get a go. Like it was so Mickey Mouse. It, it was, oh my it was terrible. Like, but remember, you, probably, you probably needed a break. I, I, <laughs> I, I don't know. At that time I was pretty gung-ho, but I remember asking the instructor, hey, you know, what about this? I asked him like a really specific question and he said, uh, you know what? I don't know. And he looked down at his rank and he said, I got my shit. Oh my God. <laughs> dirt bags, just dirt bags. I was an E6 uh, e and he was, he was probably an E6 as well. I ran into him in Afghanistan a couple of years later. Yeah. And, uh, I was an E seven, I think, and he was still an E six. Like, oh my like gosh, yeah, he dude. was just worthless. But that was, that was non-commissioned officer training. Um, at, at the level of E6, which is a very important rank. I mean, I mean that school should be, I was thinking, like my, my roommate was an RI, like he was a range instructor, right? And uh, I was thinking, you know, all these guys, all these experience, we can all learn from each other. And all. there was none of that, man. It was just check the box, go to the strip club and get it over with, man. I, I, it was bad. And then as you move up the ranks then, now they have, uh, 
the master leader course now, which we never did because it wasn't a requirement. Yeah. And then they have the Sergeant Major Academy. So the Sergeant Major Academy is a year long. Um, there's a shorter version for soft. I did the shorter version. But the, 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 the army go to, go to uh, Fort Bliss for what a year. What could you do no, possibly? It, it's ridiculous. For, so when I ran uh, the warrior leader course, which was the PLDC for soft, the, the, the Sergeant Major, Sergeant's Major from the Sergeant Major Academy came and visited, right? And they were going, we were going around talking and all. And these were like super regimented, regular army Sergeant Majors, right? And uh, they were talking one day. And, and at that time, the, the PLDC or the, the Warrior Leader Course that I was running was 22 days. And they're like, yeah, we're taking a cutting it back. To, to like 14 days. And I'm like, why? Oh, it's too long. I'm like, okay, let me get this straight. And you're talking to like, I was an E8 at the time, but I was a first sergeant, but you're talking like super regimented sergeant major who don't get talked to like that by, by first sergeants, right? I said, let me get this straight. And I think it was three of them. I said, brand new NCOs coming in the army who need leadership training, get 14 days. Sergeants majors who've been in the army for 20 years need a year. It should be the it's other so way true. around. Yeah. It should be the other way around. I'm like, what the hell do you do for what a year? And they were just stunned that I would talk to them like that. They yeah. were just like shocked. And it's I, true. I, they, I had no answer. It, it is, right? That young NCOs who need leadership training get 14 days. Sergeant majors, 20 years in the army, regimented a year. There's like a month it, on military museums. It's, it's such, such a yeah, waste it really of fucking is. Yeah, time. It, it, yeah, yeah. Uh, so... Um, yeah, leadership training. Yeah. Well, well, that's that's the one. That's the hardest thing, right, to navigate. And I, I want to ask, um, what do you think about this? It's like mindset. When you when everybody could easily talk about mindset because it's so it's so thrown around, right? Yeah. It's so catchy, and it's overused. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. This whole mindset is everything. Like, oh yeah, is it everything? Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, tell me what I need to do specifically, and then nobody has an answer. So when you train something that is only really applied in the corporate world, right? In, in business, um, how do you apply it to the military? And then the typical answer is like, you look at Medal of Honor recipients. They so easily use and reference, like when I won the leadership award in ANOC, in uh, SF ANOC, mm -hmm. they, they gave me a book from a Medal of Honor recipient. And I went, what does this have to, I like in my, in my brain, I'm like, what does this have to do with leadership? because he won the Medal of Honor. Mm -hmm. I know guys who won the Medal of Honor who aren't very good leaders. Yeah. Because it was an act of courage. It wasn't yeah. leadership. Yeah, no. So leadership is very different. Let's let's line out some things that you think are important. I'll, I'll talk about some things on attributes that make a great leader. Yeah. What, what do you think? If you had I, name I, I don't know if you can make a great leader at a young age, right? Because when I was even, even in E6 in the infantry, I screamed and shouted and push-ups and, and I did. Now, my guys love me and my squad, right? And and a lot of them went on to, to do awesome stuff, right? But I I, uh, I was hard. I, I was hard on them. I, I think I, I think a good leader has the ability to look at a situation from the other side, right? As as an E5 or as, as, a, as a young private in the army, like, like kind of look at how he sees it from his side. I remember being an AAR in the infantry when we did a life or exercise in Germany where we were maneuvering and uh, you'd maneuver up, you'd do squad life for, you'd hit a bunker, you'd throw a life hand grenade in and shoot it and then you'd move up, do a breach, get up into the defense and, and you'd have to negotiate problem sets, right? And you'd take fire from a pneumatic machine gun, right? And there'd be bunkers. And you'd have to go from the from the prone, figure out what's going on, base of fire, flanking element and all that, right? 
And um, I remember standing in front as an E6, standing in front of the battalion commander doing an AAR. And he was saying, how come you didn't hit that bunker right away? And I said, you saw that bunker because you put it in place. You were standing up. I was laying on my fucking belly trying to figure out what was going on. You need to see what I see when I'm on the prone. And he was like stunned that I would say that to him. But he had no concept of how... Me having never seen that that scenario before, how I maneuvered up, maneuvered up my guys that were on the prone and and trying to figure out how to maneuver on yeah. something from the prone position. He had no concept they of looking at it. should have been a question it. instead. Like, yeah. Sarn Owens, tell me your what perspective. Could you see? What could you see? Yes, yeah. You're looking at wow. it from, his pers- from, from the guy on the ground's perspective. Yeah. And I, I think that's a really important... Uh, like like trait right yeah. and, and give comes, me your understanding of yes. what you saw yeah so and, you can and, get perspective because I, I was like the best squad leader in the battalion right and well known to be but so for him he'd be like okay i'm interested in, to know what what you saw and why it took so long to get a base of fire in there you versus know what I mean? just going versus, off the cuff. yeah 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 um whereas other guys just they didn't know it was out there and they just fire maneuver fire maneuver and you'll get cut to pieces by a machine gun right yeah like I, another one would be the breach right you, you'd have Bradley fighting vehicles up and you'd have to go up and there'd be a, a road with concertina wire on it, right? And you'd have to go up with bunkers overwatching it. It's a fuck, it's a suicide mission, right? Because those bunk I used to take things real seriously because I'd been in combat, right? But those bunkers have machine gun fire crossed on that, like locked in on that on that breach, right? Because they know. But you'd go through the battle drill, okay, again, prior to 9-11, made no sense, right? You'd get up there, you'd check the box, throw smoke. Smoke doesn't stop bullets, right? And you'd go up with your with your wire cutters, you'd cut the wire, pull it aside, and let the, let the vehicles go through. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't do that. I'd go 500 yards to the left, I'd cut through a covert breach, I'd come up, knock out the bunkers, Put, put security on them and then come back and breach the wire with nobody shooting at me and they lose their mind because I didn't I didn't go through it the way they had set it up. unconventional. Yeah, I was unconventional yeah. thinking Yeah. but whereas everybody else just goes up into the machine gun fire and pretends it doesn't exist and they just and, die and cut through and they'd get an attaboy whereas I'd, they'd be like saying I was screwed up for doing it that way whereas I, I, in real life I would have saved all my guys' life. I'm not cutting through a breach with three bunkers over watching it on a road and throwing smoke like it, like it stops bullets, you know? So that, that, uh, that conventional mindset instead yeah. of looking at the big picture going, you know what, that was pretty smart. You know, that, that was a good way to do it. So... Um, well, that, that, that's the difference. With, I mean, there's something there because it's... You have conventional tactics like battle drills. They're yeah. outline fire maneuver battle drills that are very defined. Yeah. And I remember in NTC, JRTC, just doing over and over again. Yeah. And when you do those, you're develop, developing like a conventional um, uh, kind of understanding of warfare. Yeah. But then anything outside of that is seemed is deemed unconventional. Yeah. Or in this case, like a regular warfare. And then it makes people uncomfortable. It was frowned upon. It yeah. was frowned. I remember yeah. being an being NTC. Being creative. I remember being an NTC as a private E2. And we're, we're maneuvering and we're up on the hill. We're up on this hill, right? <laughs> and there's an enemy tank. And the squad leader, I have a saw. There's two saw gunners. The, 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 uh, the squad leader's like, shoot at the tank. I'm like, with a saw? He's not even gonna chip the paint. And he's like, do it. I'm like, okay. And I start shooting blanks, right? And lasers. And the, the, you just see that that uh, turret spinning around, <laughs> like blew the top of the hill off, like oh dead, everybody. God. I'm like, oh my. But it's it's it was so Mickey Mouse and unreal because the, nobody had been to war, right? Everybody was just playing I war. was just playing 
freaking so Call funny, of Duty, man. man. Yeah, so yeah. funny. Um, um, I, I think experience is the best teacher. I, I've said it before. I think um, leadership, and maybe it's supposed to be set up that way. When you're a corporal or you're a, you're a sergeant or a staff sergeant, you're you're a in your face kind of leader because that's what some privates need. And uh, as you get older and more mature and gain in rank, you, be, you become less. Like when I was a first sergeant, I didn't need to yell at all. I, I could destroy your career with my pen. I, I, and, and you know what I mean? I, I could write you a counseling statement. I could drop you from a course that would destroy you. So, so I shouldn't need to, to, to yell and scream at that point. So I, I don't like it's weird because in that peacetime army, there are only a few people who had combat. Yeah. But even the experienced guys, what I've noticed is even in special operations, you could be completely validated in war. You could be vetted like people are like that guy is a rock star in war. But it, it doesn't necessarily make you a good leader. Yeah. Can you think of anything specific, like things that you actually remember implementing that shaped you as being recognized as a good leader? Like, is there anything like clear communication? Like, I remember, yeah. mm -hmm. I remember, I mean, it's partly the reason why I'm so um, abruptly, openly honest about my communication mm -hmm. because I don't want there any room for doubt. Uh, which is important in war, right? It's, yeah, import it's yeah. important in war, but it's also important in getting people to do what you want them to do effectively and efficiently. Yeah. Because if you're giving them room for questions, yeah. uh, that could lead to death. Yeah. So I'm always very concise about how I specifically give guidance, even at the, I mean, even in business, mm -hmm. really. Is there anything that you could, you could recall of traits that you picked up along the way that, that you went, okay, I need to consciously do this because it's not being done? Um, I, I was always like, we, when I was a squad leader in infantry, we trained all the time. Like every single day we were in the woods training and everybody else was hanging out in their rooms. So we trained so much. My guys were very, very, very pro proficient. But I, I, I always tried to train my, my E5s, my sergeants as leaders and, and put them in a position where they had to take charge if I got hit. And I think that really, really helped and it really helped build their confidence. And, and then same thing as an ODA, as a, as a team sergeant in, in SF, you put those cell leaders in charge and make them step up. There's things I wish I'd done when I look back. Did you ever have, um, you ever have a team sergeant that made the senior Bravo write the NCOER for the, for the junior? Yes. So I always looked at that as him being lazy, man. And I think there was some of that. But I remember when I was at the NCO Academy, there was another first arm was there. It was like, I, I make the, the seniors write the juniors NCO because it's good training. Now, I vet it. I read it. I AAR it. And I give them guidance. Because in SF, like if you were if you weren't in the infantry or in, in some other MOS, if you come in as an 18 X-ray, the first time you write an NCOER is when you're a team sergeant. Yeah. You have Isn't no, that crazy? Yeah, it's insane, right? So when I, I look back and I was like, you know what? I should have done that. I didn't want, I felt guilty because I felt like I was uh, pawning off work on them. You know, and I remember when I when I took over as a team sergeant, I tried to do everything. I tried to schedule ranges, book ammo, because I felt like it was my job and I wanted my guys to train until one time a range fell out. Like I, I dropped the ball on something and Terry was my senior Bravo and Terry came to me and was like, that's my job, man. Let me do it. And I was like, you know what? You're right. And I just gave it all to Terry and it never got screwed up again. Right? So you're constantly learning. It doesn't matter how much experience you have. You're constantly learning as you go. Uh, and um, I'm sure you, you're, you're learning right now how to be a leader in, in, in business. You know what I mean? And, and how to manage people in business. 
Yeah, being a being a leader in business has been that's different, right? Uh, a challenge because it, it's com- <laughs> it's completely different, it man. Yeah, but I, I I remember, I mean, even like the example of being a team sergeant. Being a team sergeant in the SIF was a hard job. It was yeah. not easy. It, well, was, you're, you're, it was a lot. Yeah, it's funny because uh, in Force Mod, when I ran the Force Mod office, I had probably ten E eight team sergeants working for me. Yeah. And somebody was like, said something about leadership on a team. I was like, I don't want to hear it. I have a team full of team sergeants know, to, to manage, right? And, and in the SIF, you have senior NCOs, right? And especially in the snipes in the SIF company, right? Because they go through their, their assaulters for a couple of years and then they go to snipes. So you're super, everybody in my team was an E7 when I was a team sergeant, right? Which is great because they're all senior, competent guys. The problem is the SWIC or the E8 list comes down four to make the ELS one year. They're all, on gone. The, they're all gone, right? And I got to start again. But it was, I, I, it was a difficult challenge, but you have to manage very senior people differently than you manage like junior people. Or, or And I never had, like there's teams now with E5s on them. And I was like, I never had that. I, I mean, you were probably the same, right? In 10th group when you were team sergeant, you probably had super senior guys. Yeah, I think, well, in 10th group, when I stood up C210, I had junior guys. Did you? Well, I stood up a team, I stood up a company, we stood up a company that converted their teams from non-SIF guys to SIF guys. Wow. So we had our cell leaders. Did they get the chance to pop out if they didn't want to do that? No, so if we had, if we had like a, um, a, uh, a guy who was a junior guy who didn't want to be in the SIF, he could leave. He could, okay. So mm-hmm. we, in fact, through the whole entire group, we got to handpick our guys, which mm-hmm. is very unique in, in Special yeah. Forces Command. Yeah. And then um, what we ended up doing is taking our cell leaders from the SIF mm-hmm. and then making them uh, the leadership for small units uh, as cell leaders, and then all the other guys were junior guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so what I thought about was like... Um, when me and you went to Halo Jumpmaster, mm-hmm. we went to free fall. We had an opportunity to go to ADIC, yeah. advanced free fall. So we did both. And by the time we got back to the team, I mean, that was like seven weeks. Yeah. Right? Seven yeah. weeks. Yeah. And, you know, every single minute that you get on the team, you want to capitalize on it. And, right. You, know, you only get two years as a team. You get two years. I don't want to take leave. Like, I, <laughs> when I got, when I got, because um, I did, I got to do a rotation to Libya. Um, after we got uh, validated and in my team starting time that way. But I was super, like I said to the chain of command, if I could still be a team sergeant and still be operational, I'll stay in. Mm-hmm. You give me another give me another team, send me to another group. As long as I can get team start time, I'll, I'll stay in. Preferably somewhere, some, somewhere where somebody's going to war. And they, they couldn't guarantee that. Yep. And I'm like, all right, peace out. It's very easy, easy. Cause they, I, you're going to become a first sergeant. Yep. And then that was my next path. They're like, well, we got you slotted to be whatever, HSC first sergeant, whatever yeah. it was. Yeah. I'm like, nope, not happening. Yeah. Not doing that. I tried that too. I tried to get another year and they think they're hooking you up. They're like, no, you got to keep moving up. And if you stay another year as a team sergeant, you're putting, like, your, why? You're putting yourself behind your peers. I was like, I don't care. You know what I mean? Well, I, I, like if you yeah. get to a sergeant major position, the faster you get to that, the faster yeah. you'll be sitting on your ass frustrated at the world. Yeah, yeah. And, and like I, I had guys on my team like Terry who were like, look, I'm not updating my records because I don't want to make um, EAs and now do two years of team sergeant and be on staff the rest of my career. And I was like, okay, don't update your records. But they'll crush you now if you don't update your records. So insane. Actually, they've taken that out now. You can decline your records like I did and they'll, they'll still put you forward. Well, you, you told me something that I always thought was interesting. 
like the military has this scale and they want you to come in. It's like you come in as an E1 and you work yourself up to an E9. But if you got a guy who's an E4, Mm -hmm. his aptitude (laughs) keeps him as an E4 and he just loves it. Yeah. Then why would you not and just great at it? And he's right. great at yeah. it. Yeah. Why would you not just keep him in that? Hey, machine gunner, first platoon, first squad. You're going to be a machine gunner your entire career. Yeah. How yeah. awesome is or, that? Or you're a driver, a mechanic, or, or whatever, whatever. Wherever that job is. And he's like, I'm good with that. I'll get a pay raise every year, every two years, and I'll crush it. But the army's no move up or move out. If you don't get promoted by a certain time, boom, kicked out. And then we start the cycle all over again because yeah. you lose all that institutional knowledge. Mm-hmm. The big, the hardest thing for the military, especially the army to do, because the, the other services are, are good at it. Combat controllers, pararescue, they're good at retaining their guys. We suck at sustainment yeah. uh, of retaining the guys that we have. Retention is horrible in yeah, the US it's Army. terrible, yeah, yeah. That, that's, that's why the 18 X-ray program is so attractive to the regiment, is because if you get a guy like it used to be, you used to have to have like four years in the army or something like that, where you couldn't go unless you were like an E6, I think, back in the day, and uh, go to selection. And then, but they take them straight in and off the street now because once you get a guy, and I think there's a minimum age of like 20 or maybe in 22, but once you get a guy through the pipeline, now you've got him for. 20 more years, 25 more years, and he could be a regiment CSM, right? Yeah. Whereas if you get a guy who's already got, you know, eight, 10 years in the army, you're, you're not going to get him to that high level. And that that's the play for the 18 extra program, bringing people off the street. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. But answer me this. What, what's the biggest uh, challenge in being a leader in business as compared to the army? Ooh, that's very easy. What it's, is that? The, well, it's easy because... We are, we're both military guys, so we understand this. How you lead, uh, how you lead in the army is not the same as you lead in special operations because it's different personalities. There, there's different driving factors. Mm-hmm. So, what I realized in business is some of the best entrepreneurs lead like they're going to war. Um, I can't remember the guy's name. It was Mark, but he was the um, CEO. He used to be a CEO of Oracle, like a powerhouse uh, technology business or, or uh, tech business that's that does a whole bunch of stuff. And he would have these go to war. Spe- he passed away from cancer, but he, he would have all these go to war speeches. I used to do speaking engagements where I talked after him or before him. And then he finished after me um, in the speaking uh, uh, roles that day. And he would just like, we're going to war. Be prepared for battle. And all the Salesforce people that were in the room, which were young, impressionable young minds in business, and specifically in this case, sales, were super pumped. Mm-hmm. We're going to war. Screw up. We're going to crush these guys. And I saw all the, the similarities, specifically in that field. But what I've realized in business is um, nothing's changed from the military in the idea of managing people, because people often lead to success. Even if it's automated success, it's automated success through people managing automated uh, processes. So that difficulty has has been um, very apparent, even in the recent uh, future. A, a, a big part of it is expectation management. Mm-hmm. Because when you're in the military and in special operations and you lead, everybody's expectation is slightly skewed, but we're, we're in the confines of left and right limits that we all agree on. And civilian life, incentives are very different. Most of my team guys' incentives were killing bad guys. So that's why they were there. 
They didn't go to Sephardic, to Sodic, to Freefall, to Selection, bust their ass to sit at a desk. They did that because they want to get in the fight. Mm-hmm. So my job as a leader was to try to facilitate that fight. Well, in civilian life, a guy shows up or a gal shows up and they're driven by money. They're driven by purpose. They're driven by a nine to five so they can go home uh, right after you know, 501, 4.59, they're checking out, right? Uh, whatever that incentive is, it's very different than the incentives that we see in, in uh, uh, military life. But what I've tried to do as a leader is tried to shape the culture of this company similarly to the purpose that you would find in the military. Mm-hmm. Because if somebody comes on board and they have no purpose, then they're lost. It does that, that oh, and, and money is temporary. You can show up here and be making, just like I did in, 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 uh, with the CIA, I'm making a shit ton of money. Like making a thou, 800 to 1,000 a day, just waking up and sometimes not doing anything, mm-hmm. just eating chow, is and making 160,000 a year for six months of work, mind boggling. But it wasn't enough to keep me in that job because I needed purpose. And mm-hmm. then waking up going, oh, what can I spend my money on today? Like screw this place. You couldn't pay me $10,000 a day. 100 grand, I'd be on board. Mm-hmm. But 10 grand a day, I'd be like, dude, I, I have to find purpose. So those are some challenges that you know, you've been part of, but it's, it's difficult, man. Do you find it frustrating to deal with people which are, that are, are motivated by money and going home at five, which are normal traits in 99% of the population probably. Do you find that frustrating as, as, a, as a, a manager? I do, but I've become better at it because I mean, what I've realized is we're not all driven by the same things. Yeah. And for some people, like some people who are driven by money, well, they're driven by money because that means security. Yeah. That might mean insecurity. Like, it, they, like they need that blanket or mm-hmm. whatever, it, whatever it may be. It's a whole bunch of abstract psychology that you can't always wrap your head around, but I've become more empathetic to just going, okay, what what is the objective of the business? How can we be successful? Does it still fit in the parameter? If it does, then fire and forget. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, I don't. what I try not to do, because I, I've done it before, is bog myself down trying to think through the complexities that are human beings. Yeah. Human beings are fucking, you could either look at us as simpleton monkeys who are just, um, you know, uh, cavemen, um, but I think the the opposite is true. I think we're super complex in our psychology and behavior, which makes it a big pain in the ass just to think about. Yeah, every, everybody's got baggage too, and, and personal stuff going on, and family stuff that you're not really privy to. But if you're, it's it's an it's a it's a, a change for us because if you're a team son and you have a guy in your team who's looking at his watch every every. 10 minutes because it's getting close to, to, to 4.30, you're like, man, this guy's a dirtbag. I'm getting rid of him. You know what I mean? Yeah. Which in the civilian world, that's just normal, right? Well, we, we've been super judgy because we have a standard. Yeah. Right. My standard of, of people I surround myself with is still the same standard as I had in the military. Yeah. If I'm not willing to go to war with you, I don't want to be around you. Yeah. And yeah, I'll, I'll play the game. But to be honest, like I can't, I couldn't, like nobody who currently works for this company is a person that I don't trust. Mm. Um, and, and that's important. Like, you're, yeah, you might scale where you have hundreds or thousands of employees and you can't track everything. But I think at the core of the business, the closer you get to headquarters, the more you have to have trust in people's um, wanting to be there. Like, mm. I, I want them to be driven by the mission, which is, I think, selfless, which is helping other people be better prepared because whether you're a media guy and you're filming it, or you're a content provider and you're talking it, 
that's all important to connect. And as, and as long as we have that common objective, I think we can get stuff done. Yeah, I mean, and shit will come along the way, but we can address that. And everybody's personality is different, right? But managing personalities, what we did as team sergeants, right? Managing big personalities, man. Crazy. As, yeah, NSF, that, that, there's some big personalities. Yes. Um, um, let's talk about um, this translate uh, in, in closing out this conversation. Let's talk about survival and how leadership translates to survival. And I'll geek out for just a minute, but the Shackleton Expedition, mm-hmm. which is commonly referred to as the Shackleton Expedition. What's the podcast that that was on? Do you remember? I'll send it to you. Okay, I just yeah. want to put it on here. I'll send yeah, it to you yeah. on the way back. Yeah. Um, it, it's, oh yeah, it's called the History Cache. Okay. And she's a, phen- man, I, I want to hire her just to do survival podcasts yeah, for us. Yeah, yeah. Because some podcasts just catch you. They and do. And some you listen to for like 30 seconds, you're like, nope. You yeah. Know, yeah. She does she's the audio equipment is not the best, but how she converses with you with music and stuff in the background. It's super cool. Yeah. And she has a four part series on Shackleton. And here's, here's something of note of how this came about. I've always been a nerd about expeditions. I've mm-hmm. always read every, like I read the Shackleton book when I was a kid, or like I was 17 years you old. Can you give it a 30 second version of, of what happened? Yeah, so mm-hmm. uh, in 1914, um, Ernest Shackleton set out on his fourth expedition to go across the continent of uh, Antarctica, uh, the South Pole. The South Pole the year before, or the year of, had already been discovered early in the year. Um, so he wanted to do a transcontinental um, um, movement with sled dogs across the entire uh, continent. Uh, there were two ships involved. I, I believe it, the Aurora was the first one and the Endurance, which he renamed a boat, was the second one. They get, uh, without going into too much detail, they get trapped in ice and they fight through the struggle and survival and end up being rescued by Shackleton um, after he um, makes this long expedition that lasts weeks with five of his guys. And, you know, he, he disembarked and left. Uh, he had a total of 28 guys, including himself. And they disembarked and left them on an iceberg or no, left them on Elephant Island after they found it after hop skipping and jumping across icebergs the entire time, uh, slates of ice that were melting and then, uh, rescued his guys 22 months, 22 months sleeping in fart sacks, uh, telling bad jokes, keeping warm with each other, surviving a a true, uh, successful story of survival. The notes of this that are important to highlight in kind of like the transition of, uh, the conversation in leadership is his ability to bring people together when they should have been ripping each other apart. Every failed expedition, including the John Franklin expedition, which took place in the 1800s. Oh, no, no, actually, uh, Franklin was 1904, where everybody died, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Actually, I think it was in the 1800s. I I have to reference that. There was a lot of expeditions around that that started a century. ton of them. Yeah, yeah. It's funny, 100 years ago, those big parts of the world never, like the Amazon, like there's places in the Amazon never, never been explored, you know? The first people to touch like a human foot on Elephant Island was Ernest Ernest Shackleton's guys. Yeah. Um, And they had been floating on icebergs until that point, right? Until after the endurance got trapped. But he had, he was noted as having this understanding of culture. He actually recruited, the coolest thing about this is it's so similar to special operations when you think about it. He assessed and selected. He's the first known, there's no tangible proof of this, by the way. It's just reference and conversations. He was the first explorer to put out an ad 
for what he wanted. And he, he did, he used uh, uh, reverse psychology, right? He's like, it's the worst experience you're ever gonna face. Mm-hmm. You know, basically uh, you're not gonna get anything, but you might get glory. And 5,000 applicants applied. Wow. Uh, including women. Yeah. And he, he chose at the end of the day, 20, uh, I think including himself, 27, and then he had a stowaway, an 18 year old stowaway, which is yeah. funny. But all the guys he chose in specific positions that were experts, but not always the technical experts. So he, you know, he had a meteorologist. Um, he had a scientist. He had laborers, uh, a cook, a, a photographer. But he didn't necessarily pick the person with the best skill set. He picked the person with the best likelihood of interacting and interoperating with each other. Mm-hmm. So the reason he did that is because he had been on past expeditions with famous explorers that um, he saw the worst sides of um, and, and the people interacting with each other where they were ripping each other apart. Mm. And so that is truly, as a start point, one of the main reasons he's known as being one of the greatest leaders in survival and getting them through that. Um, of note, he did things like uh, occupy their time. He gave them a strict re- uh, regiment every single day they had to follow. Whenever he saw morale plunder, he interjected himself and he did things like feed, you know, we're doing salmon and biscuits tonight. Mm. And, and people were like, oh my God, they were enthralled. Um, he did things like, um, he made them work their sled dogs. They had 69 sled dogs and a couple litters of puppies, all by the way, which were killed mm-hmm. um, uh, um, in different segments of the journey because of survival. But anyways, I, I, I throw that out there because I'm going to do with you a, a, a series that we're going to start dropping on Philcraft Survival of looking and analyzing these epic stories of survival. The, we're going to do the, the, you know, Vinny on Target when mm-hmm. we were in Iraq together. We're going to do the Expedin, or, or uh, the uh, Shackleton Expedition. We're going to do the Donner Party uh, yeah. tragedy, mm-hmm. all these things, like the, even the, the, I think it was Argentina or Chile, the alive where the plane oh, yeah, crashed yeah, in the An- yeah. Andes mountains. Yep, yep. All those things are gonna be super interesting because we get to enjoy learning about it. Mm-hmm. But most importantly, we get to figure out ways to communicate to everyday people how that is important in their own lives when thinking about survival. Yeah, I just wonder if there's a common trait and mindset in, in some of the people that survive those things that we're able to articulate later on, if there's a common leadership trait that, that helped them get through it, you know? I think, I think one of the ones is uh, conscious, um, and, and actually when I asked you the question about any of the tactics that you used, uh, being conscious and, and, and leading to action, meaning doing things like thinking, okay, right now there's nothing going on. I'm going to make them do this. Mm-hmm. We often in our career fields just did it out of habit. Yeah. But those conscious things that we did out of habit were trained and led to better optimized responses. Mm. So when people are lost, right? Cause they don't understand the plan and you hear a guy go, what's the plan? And then you bring in the team leaders and you brief the team leaders and they disseminate it. Everybody goes, oh crap, yeah. now I got it. Mm-hmm. We're on the same sh- we take that for granted because we do. I didn't even think about it. We yeah. do that all the time. All the time. Yeah. Yeah. So even, even being like, I remember being in Kosovo for nine months and if there was nothing going on and have my guys working on the, the building, fixing things and, or doing, you know, training battle drills or, or stuff like that. And at the time I wasn't 
consciously thinking I got to keep them busy. It's just something we did normally, you know, it just, yeah. it was kind of natural thing, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't like, Oh, okay. Now we're not, we got nothing tomorrow. Let's, let's figure something out. Yeah. It was just like, Hey, get off your ass and let's do something. You know? well, I think it was like Shackleton. He learned it through experience. Yeah. And you know, in, in the Shackleton story, there's a whole bunch of mistakes that he made. Um, uh, one time they were, they were doing a movement from where the ship was and they had to, uh, venture out and they only wanted up moving a couple miles, but they left all their food behind. And when they did that, they camped at a place beyond their food and started to starve. Mm-hmm. And so they had to kill dogs. Mm. They had to do all these things that they didn't want to do because they were super, um, um, like led down that path by Shackleton and trusting in his knowledge and experience. But it, it ended up being one of the worst experiences. Like in the, in the History Cache podcast, she often refers this, um, to this behavior as like a, a like kind of a manic behavior because mm-hmm. he kept doing it. Like he, he wanted to streamline the people that he was with speed uh, in moving across terrain. And so he kept ditching food. Mm-hmm. And then d- dudes would, get, would start starving all the way to the point where they had to kill the last bit of dogs, which were sled dogs that could have led them across terrain they, they had, a, they killed them because they had to eat them because they mm. had no food. Weird stuff. But mm. how, I, how did you, let me ask you this. How did you, uh, how did you deal with, because this, you know, we've both been in units where if you make a mistake, certain mistakes, you're gone, you're done, right? You do CQB and you do an HR hit and you miss a target, right? You put a round off the side of the target. There's units where you're kicked out for that. Like I've had guys do that in my team and I'm like, all right. Now you know where the line is. Let's slow it back down and do it again. And I, I to me, I, I, I call it's called training for a reason, right? Okay, yeah. let's make mistakes in training. As long as nobody gets hurt, let's back it up and redo it again. But there's there's other places where that would that would you be gone, you be gone that day. Um, how how were you with that? Like as a team sergeant in, in, in with your guys? I I experienced it firsthand. I mean, we had a team sergeant that shot a no, no shoot during a big training. I think it was the validation, a vetting mm. validation mm-hmm. thing. It wasn't observed. Oh, no, no. It was a training before the validation. Okay. So um, similar thing. Like he goes in, he winds up um, uh, taking shots on a, a non-threat. And uh, after that, those shots were taken, uh, we board him like a safety board. And immediately I thought to myself, because this guy was an experienced guy. Mm-hmm. I think he was a C-110 guy, highly respected. Uh, really good dude, really good team sergeant, good leader. And here we are, are in this board. And because it was part of our doctrinal SOP, we just did it. Like mm-hmm. we were like, and the whole time I'm looking at the guys going, what, what are we doing right now? And you know, the safety board, it was read off the protocol, off the, the written SOP on how the procedures are handled. And we did it real formally, formally. And then we got down to the vote. And I went, I'm, I'm not good with this. I'm not going to vote yes. Mm-hmm. And, and I was the first, per, like the other dude voted yes. And they came to me and then it was two other team sergeants, all the team sergeants in the company and the sergeant major. And I said, I'm not good with this. Look, people make mistakes because they're training. Mm-hmm. The, there is no point. That, like if you create a point in which you say, there is, there is no opportunity for failure here. If you make one mistake, you're gone. What you're doing is taking all the potential risks that people are going to take and you're reeling it back so nobody takes any risk. Yeah. Right? Yep. So 
this guy was willing to take a risk because he exposed himself. Mm-hmm. If you said it was a no shoot, uh, no fail, and if you shoot and you hit a non uh, non threat, you go to jail or you get kicked out of the unit. Guess what? Nobody would have taken that shot no. because no. they would have been in fear. How do you know where the line is? Yeah. If you don't push, right? I yes. I prefer people make mistakes leaning forward than leaning back. But there's a mentality there that, that I just don't get it. You know, I when I was uh, when I started working at sniper school, Sean was the uh, NCIC, and he he started at the same time as me. And uh, there was a student was set up for a, a, a sniper initiated assault because the assaulters coming in, and where he was positioned, he took a shot and it skipped off the ground, right? And I was standing right there. It was my first class. I was shadowing, and they safety boarded that kid, right? And he was an A15 guy, and he was fr- freaking rock star, right? And they everybody because that was the protocol and they were used to doing it that way everybody was like kick him out kick him out kick him out kick him out and sean was the president and sean had talked to me and he's like what do you think and i said look the instructor put the target there it was on a on a on a kind of a hill where this guy had to shoot it and it's the instructor's fault the the target it was bad target placement you should never put a student in that position right because he's a student for a reason and uh, Sean was like, got it. And they were like, kick him out, kick him out, kick him out, kick him out. And Sean was like, overruled, he's staying in. And they were so mad at him. But it was absolutely the right call. Yeah. You're a freaking student. That's how you learn. Yeah. And it wasn't his fault. It was the instructor. So I don't like that mentality where guys are afraid to push the line for fear of getting kicked out. You know? Yeah. Um, and that's the difference between a good leader and a bad leader. Because yeah. like bad leaders are often conformist. They just follow yeah. suit and they, they left, right, left. And they mm-hmm. don't want to think through problems because yeah. in, in that's the fail, failing point in doctrine yeah. because it, 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 it is created in, in the absence of creativity and thought to accelerate uh, efficiency, yeah. right? Or yeah. movement. Mm-hmm. So when you look at like a tactic and you're like, well, this is the only way that this could happen. You often go, um, you often go, well, there's this way, but does that mean it's wrong? It's not wrong if it's this way because you just thought creatively. Mm-hmm. Like when me and you went and we fell into a task force, um, I can't remember what year, 07, I believe. Um, Tom DiTomaso, who's retired now, he was the commander that was operating with us uh, for the task force, and he made us do callouts. And everybody was complaining. Yep, to include me. And, and they're like, yep. they're like, oh, there's this new tactic. And yeah. we, used to, I, I, we used to make fun of all we the- like, We're not cops. Yeah, yeah we're not cops. Yeah, yeah. Um, until, but, we, until we hit a target with 14 suicide bombers on it. <laughs> yeah, and then you're like, wow, if yeah. we would have did what we did the year before, we'd be yeah, dead. Everybody would yeah. be dead. Mm-hmm. So uh, often those conversations are tough, but they have to be had. I have, I've had instances where, um, you know, I've stood up to leadership and, and stated my mind or my peace. And what I've realized is in not conforming and standing up and being the, the one to, to speak your opinion, as long as it's professional, mm-hmm. as long as it's constructive or, or, um, intelligent, then it never, it doesn't get, it doesn't get shut, get it shut down. Mm, I mean, yeah. I, d- I did that when me and Chris were stuck on that roof in 06, um, in that big gunfight. And it was this big deal because a Meffert was criticizing me in an open forum brief about what I've did and how I shouldn't have done it. Mm. And Chris didn't say anything, which is surprising, which is shocking, which is shocking. Yeah. But at the time he's just like, he, whatever, it's not yeah. like he wouldn't say that. Yeah. Um, but I remember standing up and like, and, and, and squaring up on Sergeant Major Mefford and being mm-hmm. like, look, this is what happened. And then in that conversation, the combat controller stood up for me and he backed me up. And I was like, and uh, I like the whole room was like, yeah, 
Yeah, that's ex- yeah, that's yeah, different. Yeah, and I was like, yeah. thank mm-hmm. God. I, I don't think because I we had p- been pulled to the ICTF mm, side okay. to do that. Yeah. Um, so what's the let's end off with? What do you think is the most important? Um, what's the most important leadership tactic for somebody? Or let's frame it this way. What's the most important way that somebody who's listened to this podcast can become a better leader uh, by implementing something in their life? I, I think um, I think you hit it on the nail on the head, like communication, right? Clear, concise communication and making sure people know what's expected of them. I think that that's a huge leadership trait, which we're not all, we don't always do well, myself included, right? I think that's that's the big one right there. Yeah, I think mine it would be um, um, if you want to be a better leader, start practicing. And the way you could start is by being an informal leader, which is a leader that's not defined in your duties or responsibilities, but start leading your family. A lot of guys I know are into this lifestyle. Not many women. There are a few women. Our goal is to increase that number. But a lot of guys who go out, do tactical, tactical training, med training, all this stuff, even listen to this podcast, they don't bring it home and they don't lead their families. Um, what I mean by leading your family is, is training, mentoring, and, and, and grooming your family to be better prepared, uh, which lends your survivability and everybody that you love survivability in a better direction. Mm-hmm. I think that, that's the way to end it. Um, man, we could talk about this forever. I mean, yeah. There's, yeah. there's so many stories, a couple that I wanted to get into, mm. um, but I'm excited about this new uh, survival series because I'm going to mm-hmm. have to, you're going to have to listen to an hour podcast on your hour drive. Yeah. I, I, cool. I'll go to where the Donner party was. I really don't want to go to, to where the Shackleton thing was, man. Know. You know, hey, when you were like, Hey, we're going to do it. And I was like, Oh God, is he going to make me go to the Antarctic? <laughs> I thought about that and I looked at the map and, and did some research. I'm like, that's, that's impossible. Yeah, yeah, you can't yeah. do that. Let's not do that. All right. Thanks, Kev. All right, man. Here we go. Later. Later.